Well, I hope you don't mind that I do bring uh, some water up here with me. I have a tendency if uh, I'm speaking and I get a little bit nervous and my mouth gets dry, but also, I mean, let's face it, to preach an hour and a half is a long time. <clears throat> you know, many years ago I heard Ravi Zacharias, he's a Christian apologist who passed away recently, say that the first time you're invited somewhere to speak, uh, it's an act of faith. If you're ever invited back a second time, it's an act of appreciation. So Greg, Ryan, and Logan, I appreciate your act of faith in allowing me to preach the word uh, this morning. You know, in many ways, our lives consist of seasons. Seasons of health, seasons of illness, seasons of relative peace and prosperity, seasons of loss and mourning. Broadly, though, I think most lives are defined by four seasons lasting roughly from 20 to 25 years each. First, there's the, seasons of our, the season of our youth, growing, learning, full of energy, playing sports, dance recitals. Everything is new. Second is the season of young, young adulthood. We venture out on our own. We create our own family. We get jobs. We often have kids. We start our career. Third is the empty, empty nest season. The kids are grown and moved out. Grandkids are the joy of your life. Retirement looms closer and closer each year. The body slows down, and it seems like the years just speed up. But last is a season when endings draw near. Saying final goodbyes to family and friends. Health issues become more and more prevalent. The days that are gone are far more than the days that are ahead. Today, as we look into 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 8, Paul speaks to Timothy and to us from this fourth and final season of life. Thoughts turn to passing the torch, last words, what things truly, truly are important, summing things up, and what's to come after death. At times like these, words are chosen carefully. Trivial things are laid aside. Significant things are shared things to be remembered, things to take to heart. So as we read 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 8 this morning, I invite you to stand if you're able, as we show respect to God's holy and inspired word. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you this morning that you are the righteous judge who will judge all with complete knowledge and perfect justice. Lord, you have directed that the gospel is to be spread through the preaching of your word. As we enter into that divine activity this morning, I pray that your power, that your Holy Spirit would show through in the hearts of your people. May you be glorified this morning through the preaching of your word and the praise of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we consider God's word this morning, uh, my goal is to encourage us in three things. First, to encourage us to preach the word. Second, to encourage us to keep the faith by fighting the good fight of faith. And third, to encourage us to love the appearing of Jesus. So first, preach the word. Of all the important, significant, memorable things Paul could say as he shares his final words with Timothy, he charges Timothy to preach the word. That these are his final words speak to the seriousness of the charge. But even more than that, the weightiness of the matter is demonstrated by the stature of the witnesses to the charge. When we inaugurate a president, the importance of that oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States of America is demonstrated by the stature of those that are present. Senators, representatives, cabinet members, Supreme Court justices, former presidents are all there as witnesses, and they all add to the level of importance of that event. Well, in this passage, the charge to preach the word is given in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. No greater weight, no greater level of importance could be given to the charge. God and Jesus are watching. The one who will judge the living and the dead is watching. Preaching the word is a serious, significant matter. So what is preaching the word? Last week we read that the truth that, that we read the truth that all scripture is inspired by God. Preaching the word means preaching the truth of all scripture from Genesis to Revelation. One of the things that I appreciate about the preaching here at Emmaus Road Church is the exegetical preaching of the text as we work through books of the Bible together from beginning to end. Dealing with difficult texts, wrestling with hard truths, all Scripture is useful. Therefore, preaching the Word means preaching all of Scripture. But even more specifically, preaching the Word means preaching the Gospel. It means finding Jesus in every book, in every chapter, our church is named for Luke chapter 24. There we find Jesus after he was risen from the dead, and he's walking along the Emmaus Road with two men who are discussing the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection. They don't recognize Jesus at this point, but Jesus takes the opportunity to preach the word to them. In Luke 24, 27, we read, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, 
in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Scripture is about Jesus from beginning to end. It's been said that the Old Testament is the prediction of Jesus. The Gospels are the revealing of Jesus. The Acts are the preaching of Jesus. The Epistles are the explanation of Jesus. And Revelation is the looking forward to Jesus coming again. It's all about Jesus. Preaching the Word is preaching the good news about Jesus Christ. But note, too, that how we say what we say is important, too. In verse 2, we're told to preach with complete patience and teaching. Is the content of our message important? Absolutely. Vitally. It's, it's essential. But the way we deliver our message is important, too. Truth can be delivered in a harsh, impatient way that is completely lacking in compassion. No one will listen to that. It may be sound doctrine, but it's ineffective preaching. Now, you may be thinking, Lauren, you know, that's all great, but I'm not a preacher. I can certainly see how preaching the Word applies to Greg and to Ryan and and to Logan, but how does this apply to me? Well, for the answer, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. God has just given His people in this passage, He's given them the Ten Commandments, And then he told them this in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down, and when you rise. If you look at those four things, that's all day, every day. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. Now that doesn't sound like a Sunday morning activity, does it? The preaching and teaching of God's Word is certainly something we do on Sunday morning. But it's more than that. It's an everyday morning to evening activity. It's a truth that we teach to our children. It's in the conversations that we have with coworkers. It's in the interactions that we have with our neighbors. Our relationships, our conversations should be saturated in the gospel. Whenever and wherever we have the opportunity to share the truth, we can and should preach the word. Now, I know you guys looking at me think, well, he's probably in his mid-30s, but I'm uh, 57 years old, and uh, I was raised in a Christian family, so I've been attending church from before I could walk. So I would estimate that over the years, I've probably heard somewhere in the range of 2,400, 2,500 sermons. I've heard them in church, I've seen them on TV. I've listened to them on cassette tapes. I have heard good preaching. I have heard bad preaching. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, uh, yeah, Lauren, so have I. (laughs) But do you know what sermons have had the biggest impact on me? The ones that I can carry most in my memory 
Um, the ones that I can recall really, really quickly, um, they were the little sermons from my mom and dad. They probably didn't even realize that they were preaching. But it was an illustration here, a nugget of truth there, a word of correction, an explanation or a discussion of doctrine, applying God's word in the time of grief, the gospel applied to life is powerful preaching. Parents, you are the most important, the most influential preacher your child will ever hear. <clears throat> Excuse me. And grandparents, don't take your influence for granted. We are to preach the word in season and out of season. In other words, we're to preach the word in season when it seems likely that the truth that we share will bear fruit in the life of someone else. When hearts are tender and receptive and ready. And we don't know when those times will be, but we should be ready. Parents, I encourage you to be ready with your children. There are times when your kids' hearts will be especially receptive to receiving the truth of the gospel. Sometimes those moments occur on a long car ride. Sometimes they occur over the dinner table. Sometimes it's after a church service. Sometimes it's while they're trying to delay bedtime. But I encourage you to be ready. Don't miss those opportunities. But we are also to preach the word when it seems to us to be out of season. These are the times when it seems like hearts are hard, and the gospel is not going to bear any fruit. Paul tells us that in those times, we should preach the word. We're often unaware of how the Spirit might be working in the life of someone else. And from the parable of the sower in Mark 4, we know that there are times when the word will be shared and no fruit will appear. But it's not our responsibility to produce the fruit. It's only our responsibility to sow the seed. Now in verses 3 and 4, Paul tells us why it's important to preach the word. The time is coming when people will not endure, they will not put up with, they will not listen to or adhere to sound doctrine. Two weeks ago, Greg preached on 2 Timothy 3.1, where Paul talked about the last days. Greg shared how we are living in those last days. Similarly, here, when Paul talks about the time is coming, we need not look forward to some future date. In Timothy's day and in our day, there are many who have wandered away from sound doctrine and who are believing myths, believing things that sound good to them, things that feed their desires and that feed their passions. We don't have to look very far in the world to see evidence of those who would call themselves Christians turning from sound doctrine to have their ears tickled. Paul could have written, you know, Timothy, there will come a day when people won't believe that they are born in sin, but instead they'll believe the myth that they're basically good and they just make a few mistakes here and there. Or Timothy, there will come a day when people won't believe that homosexuality is a sin 
or that there is any sexual sin as long as it's between two consenting adults. Or Timothy, there will come a day when people won't put up with the truth that God is holy and just and wrathful, but rather will gather up teachers who will tell them that God is only loving and merciful. He is certainly loving and merciful, but he is not only that. There will come a day when people won't put up with the truth that hell exists and the people who don't believe in Christ are going there. Instead, they'll deceive themselves with the myth that either all people are going to heaven or that they're just going to drift off into some state of non-existence. There will come a day when people won't put up with the truth that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to God except through him. Rather, they'll gather teachers around them who will tell them that there are many ways, many religions that lead, lead to God. Timothy, there will come a day when people won't put up with the truth that Scripture is the inerrant, completely sufficient, inspired Word of God. Instead, they'll find teachers who pick and choose what to believe or not believe and become the arbiters of truth. Now, I could go on and on and on, and if you'd like me to, I will, uh, but you get the idea. We live in that day, and because we live in that day, preaching the word, remaining firm in sound doctrine, sound teaching is critical to our thinking clearly and living in the truth rather than a myth. So how do we avoid wandering from sound doctrine? In verse 5, we're given two truths that will help, us keep, will help us in keeping doctrinally sound. First, always be sober-minded. It's easy for us to wander from, to wander from truth and be carried away into myths by our emotions. For example, our emotions tell us, you know, I don't feel God's presence and things aren't going so well, so God must have abandoned me. But sound doctrine tells us that God will never leave us or forsake us. Being sober-minded doesn't mean that we are emotionless, but it does mean that we're guided by the truth of God's Word and not by the fickle shifting of our emotions. Second, we're our, we are to endure suffering. Suffering has a tendency to do one of two things in our lives. For some, suffering prompts a response of drawing closer to God to experience his peace, his comfort, and his caring. This is the act of laying our burdens on him. But for some, suffering elicits a response of questioning, of anger, of turning away. However, when we endure through suffering, when we bear up under it, God can teach us things that we do not learn in any other way. He teaches us that he is sufficient, for all things. He teaches us compassion for others who are in similar circumstances. Our character is developed and deepened. Our faith finds a new depth. So Paul tells us to endure the suffering which will most certainly come our way. Through that enduring, the truth of God's word will shine through and become even more real to us. And then in verse 6, Paul gives us another reason that it is urgent that Timothy preach the word. It's time for Timothy to take over. Paul's time on earth is coming to a close, and the baton is about to be passed. 
Paul says that he's already being poured out as a drink offering. Now, what does that mean, being poured out as a drink offering? Well, the instructions for the drink offering are given in Numbers chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. And there are a few things there that could be instructive to Paul's meaning. First, the drink offering was the last act of the sacrificial ceremony. So it would seem that Paul is saying, my life of sacrifice is nearing completion. The final act is taking place. The second thing that we see is that the drink offering was instituted after the people or when the people entered into the promised land, not before. Again, this reference to the drink offering indicates that Paul's time is short. He's already being poured out. He's at the threshold of the promised land. Second, I want to talk about fighting the good fight. In verse 7, Paul summarizes his life. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is a phrase that we often see inscribed on tombstones. On my dad and mom's tombstone is inscribed, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me. But what does it mean to keep the faith? To hold on to it? To, to keep it? Some weeks ago back, uh, Ryan preached on 1 Timothy 6, 12, which says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The faith that Paul's talking about is not some hope or feeling or an encouragement like, hang in there, bro, keep the faith. It's faith in a person. It's faith in Jesus Christ. When we have faith in someone, it means that we believe them. We trust them. We take them at their word. So what Paul means here is that he has trusted Jesus to the end. John Piper said that saving faith is a joining of ourselves to Christ as one who is wholly trustworthy, one who has infinite integrity and infinite power and therefore will do all that he said. But keeping the faith is hard. There is a good fight there's a battle, a good fight to be engaged in. There's a struggle to hang on to faith when things get hard. There remains in each of us an old nature that makes faith a struggle. We have a tendency to trust ourselves, to lean on our own understanding rather than on Christ. It's a fight because we have a continual battle between our old nature and our new nature. But it's also a fight against the powers of Satan. Ephesians 6, 12-13 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand Firm. Keeping the faith involves taking up the whole armor of God. Keeping the faith also takes endurance. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Hebrews 3, 13-14 says, 
But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Steve Fuller said in his blog, livingbyfaith.com, that everything in the Christian life Thank God for air conditioning. Steve Fuller said in his blog, livingbyfaith.com, that everything in the Christian life flows from faith in Christ. Joy, peace, and hope, love for others, victory over sin, power over Satan, and obedience. So when we lack any of these, the problem is with our faith. To strengthen those areas, we need to fight the fight of faith. The good news is that we don't fight this fight in our own power. Jesus not only commands us to have faith, but in fact enables us and strengthens us to have faith. We've been given the Holy Spirit who has the power to transform us from the inside out. So when you feel the fight of faith waging inside of you, turn again to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. In the Christian life, we will often pray, as the father of the ill child said in Mark 9.24, I believe Help my unbelief. When you enter into these times, recognize your areas of unbelief and confess them. Search the word for promises of God that address your situation. God's word is sufficient for whatever you are facing. Pray over the truth that you find in the word, both alone and with your MC or your huddle. With the word of God, with the help of the Spirit of God, and with the community of believers, we fight the good fight of faith against the deceitfulness of Satan and the desires of our sinful nature. It won't always be easy. In fact, I think I can honestly say that it won't ever be easy. But by God's grace, we can fight the good fight of faith. We can keep the faith to the very end. And third, love his appearing. In verse 8 we read, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In verse 1, Paul talks about Jesus as the one who is to judge the living and the dead. Here again he speaks about Jesus as the righteous judge. It isn't really surprising to us that as Paul's life is coming to a close, that thoughts of the judgment would be on his mind. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that, the judgment. But this judgment is not something that Paul feared. Rather, he looked forward to it, because he loved the appearing of Jesus. Now, when my kids were little, there were times when I would spend the day at work and the kids would be misbehaving at home. Not just a little misbehaving, but a lot misbehaving. Now, normally Tammy would handle these things, but there were days when the arguing and the fighting and the disobedience just would not end and she reached her limit. 
And sometimes on those days, she would say, you wait till your dad gets home. Now, most times, I think my kids were generally happy to see me when I got home from work. Why'd you laugh at that? (laughs) At least they acted that way. But on these days, when they heard the garage door go up and the car pull in the garage, they did not love my appearing. A similar thing is true of the appearing of Jesus. When Jesus came to earth the first time, there were those who hated his appearing. King Herod, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. So too at his second coming, many will hate his appearing because it will mean eternal judgment. But for those of us who keep the faith, who believe his promises, we love his appearing. At his first appearing, the angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We celebrate his appearing every year at Christmas. At his second appearing, he will come not to punish the sins of the believers, but to reward us a crown of righteousness. When I was a kid, we often sang a hymn in church that went like this. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. And I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Now what is this exchange that this song talks about? At the cross, we exchanged our sin for a crown of righteousness. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, and we receive the crown of righteousness. That is why we love His appearing. Today we sing about this same song, or about this same truth rather, in another song that I love that goes like this. It says, Turn your eyes to the hillside where justice and mercy embraced. There the Son of God gave His life for us and our measureless debt was erased. Where justice and mercy embraced. Now normally we think of justice and mercy as being opposites. Either we give justice or we give mercy. But at the cross, God's justice was shown. God's wrath was satisfied as our sin was punished in Jesus. And God's mercy was shown as He took the penalty for our sin on Himself. Justice and mercy embraced. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. There it is in one verse. For our sake, God made Jesus, who had no sin of His own, 
to be sin. He punished that sin, our sin, in Jesus on the cross so that we might receive the crown of righteousness. The gospel is the word that we preach. Preach the word. We preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The gospel is why we keep the faith. We have faith in the trustworthy Son of God. The gospel is the reason that we love His first appearing. And it's the reason that we can look forward to His second appearing with anticipation and with joy. So I encourage you today, preach the Word. In your words, in your actions, in your life, preach the truth of the Gospel. Fight the good fight. Run the course that God has prepared for you. Keep the faith. Trust in the promises of God. Trust in the One who is completely trustworthy. And love His appearing. He came to be the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for your sin. One day, He will come as King forever and ever. If you love His appearing, there is a crown of righteousness waiting for you. Let's pray. O Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. You are faithful. You are good. You are just. You are trustworthy. You alone were were worthy to be the sacrifice for our sin. We love you because you first loved us. You are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. We give that to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.